Hello, welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Berendt, the Infusion Nurse Educator for the INS, and will be the host for today's discussion. Today we're talking about bleeding disorders and have with us a special guest, Ashley Smith. Ashley Smith is a nurse specialist in bleeding disorder therapies at Paragon Healthcare Specialty. She works closely with the local bleeding disorder chapter and also volunteers for organizations within her community. Prior to her career in specialty pharmacy, Ashley Smith spent many years caring for pediatric and adult patients in an emergency department setting. She also worked in cardiology, general medicine, and outpatient surgery. Ashley was a 2004 nursing graduate from Wallace State Community College and earned a bachelor degree in nursing from Jacksonville State University, a master's in nursing education from University of North Alabama. She teaches basic life support and pediatric advanced life support and is a member of Sigma Theta Tau Nursing Honor Society. A presenter at various events, Ashley Smith has spoken on topics such as hematology, endocrinology, and first aid care. Ashley, we are so excited to have you with us here today. Um, You have a great clinical background in this area, and I want to get us started by having you tell us about pathophysiology of common bleeding disorders. Sure. Thank you, Dawn, first of all, so much for inviting me to discuss bleeding disorders. I have such a passion for the bleeding disorder community, and I am thrilled to share a glimpse of what these men and women experience. Um, Bleeding disorders are a group of hereditary conditions that inhibit the blood from clotting properly. It's important, though, to know that there can be a spontaneous genetic mutation, resulting in a baby who does not have family history being born with a bleeding disorder. And while these bleeding disorders are generally seen in males, females can also be affected. And until recently, every female carrier who shows symptoms of bleeding disorders we're called symptomatic carriers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the medical, community, the medical community has recognized that these females had symptoms, but they didn't want to treat them. And ultimately, that led to complications. Females who had untreated bleeds had joint issues, just like their male counterparts. Thankfully, though, the medical community is now realizing that these females need treatment as well. The term symptomatic carrier is decreasing, and women are being diagnosed appropriately with hemophilia. So now that they're getting the diagnosis and proper care they need, this is a huge step forward in the bleeding disorder community. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. So tell us about some of the most common bleeding disorders. So the ones that we're going to talk about, which is the most common, are hemophilia A. That is a factor eight deficiency. Hemophilia B, which is a factor nine deficiency, and then von Willebrand. The patients with hemophilia A, B, or von Willebrand may require medication to replace the factor which they lack in their body. So, for example, if they are missing factor VIII, they would take a recombinant or a plasma-derived factor VIII product to replace that in their blood. The factor replacement is necessary for uh, hemophilia A and B patients. And I'm just going to refer to factor placement from here on out as factor factor is administered intravenously and can safely be given in the home setting. Von Willebrand patients can also be treated with factor replacement 
but many are able to use other products such as desmopressin, uh, aminocaproic acid, or a tranexamic acid to help control bleeding. And that can be given via nasal spray with the, the desmopressin. Um, and the other two are tablets, which they can take orally. Back to the patients with hemophilia A and B, they are classified as a mild, a moderate, or a severe, and that's based on the level of circulating factor in their blood. Mild patients may only need factor replacement after an injury, whereas a moderate and severe diagnosis may require factor infusions prophylactically. And what that means is that they're prescribed factor infusions weekly, twice a week, three times a week, or, or so forth. Now, von Willebrand patients are categorized a little differently. There are three types, types 1, 2, and 3. Type 1 and 2 von Willebrand can further be classified in subtypes that we won't discuss today, um, but just, just for informational purposes. Mm -hmm. The people with von Willebrand may also be prescribed medication on demand for bleeding, and there are some who also follow a prophylactic schedule. Okay, very good. A lot of information in just a short few moments there. Tell us about the clotting process, if you would, please. Absolutely. The normal process for clotting would begin with platelet aggregation at the site of an injured vessel, and that will, that will form a platelet plug. So you and I, if we get injured, our platelets stick together, and, and they do too, and they form a platelet plug. Where that changes is that will activate the clotting cascade. And normally, the end result is a stable clot that has been reinforced with a fibrin clot. Now, with the bleeding disorder patients are missing major components that lead to that strong clot formation. So without factor eight or factor nine, or even the von Willebrand to carry the factor eight, they can't get that final really strong clot. So they think of a platelet plug kind of as the duct tape, and the fibrin clot at the end is cement. The mm -hmm. duct tape, at least here in the South, is the great temporary fixes <laughs> for broken items. But it was with most temporary fixes, something stronger is needed to hold that broken item together. And that's where you've got to have your factor eight and factor nine and the von Willebrand for that all to work seamlessly. So factor eight and factor nine need to be present for the clotting cascade to work properly. When one of those are missing, the fibrin clot cannot be formed. Von Willebrand factor is also needed during the clotting cascade, but it's needed in a different way. Von Willebrand factor is kind of like the Uber or the Lyft for the factor eight. It takes it to the site of the injury. Von Willebrand also helps the platelets stick together during that initial formation of the platelet plug. Mm -hmm. So people with bleeding disorders don't bleed faster than you and I do, but they just bleed longer, and they need that medication so that they don't. It can stop. Excellent, excellent. I like how you used other things to help us um, think of that, the Lyft, the Uber, and uh, duct tape <laughs> certainly gives me a better picture of what you're talking about here. So tell us about patients who present in crisis. Now, what are your main concerns in those situations? Well, so the bleeding disorder community, they're quite unique. They are a group of people who learn to self-manage, and they tend to be great advocates for proper health care. So it's rare that I have patients in crisis mode at the time they call me. But there are some things that can escalate quickly, some injuries or bleeds that can escalate and become a crisis if it's not treated properly. So my main concerns are always treating quickly and appropriately. As I mentioned, most, most of these patients can self-infuse, or they have a caregiver that will administer the medication to them if they're younger. 
um, if a patient is experiencing a bleed or has suffered an injury and they can administer their own medication, the recommendation is always to do just that. Go ahead and infuse first. Then they can notify me later. They can notify their doctor, most importantly, um, or, or the home care, the other home care nurse. So the other thing that I want to look at or, or talk about is assessing the situation. Whether or not they've infused when they make the call to me, it's always important to know what's going on, to know what happened, getting all of the pertinent information so that you can establish a really good plan of care. Some injuries or bleeds require a more aggressive treatment plan, while others can just be monitored and factor infusions aren't necessary. Mm. So, Ashley, when should persons with bleeding disorder seek treatment in an emergency department, and what role do you play when that occurs? That is a great question, Dawn. So, unfortunately, there are times due to the mechanism of injury that an emergency department visit is warranted. One of the things that I can do to advocate for the patient that's headed to the ER is to call ahead to the emergency department and explain the situation. And I know you're asking, or you may be thinking, why would a nurse need to call to an emergency department? There are plenty of nurses and doctors there. The time is valuable when these patients have a bleeding episode and factor needs to be administered as soon as possible. The last thing the patient needs is delay in treatment. So if we step back and we look at and we think about our training on hemophilia and other bleeding disorders when we were in nursing school, what, what do you remember? Do you know how to care for these patients? Do you know that they need factor immediately? So bleeding disorder education during nursing school is minimal. I can remember reading a paragraph about hemophilia. Mm -hmm. Bleeding disorders are rare. There's a high probability that the emergency department staff have no experience treating bleeding disorders. And so you've got to take that into consideration. The normal process for an emergency department, since that's my main background before I got started in this, is, is something similar to, one, you sign in, two, you would get registered, you would next get called to triage, and then your treatment or, would be immediate or you would be placed into the waiting room depending on the severity of illness or injury. So if the triage nurse did not understand really what was going on with a hemophiliac and a, and a joint bleed or a muscle bleed, they may send them back out to the waiting room and that would delay the treatment. Oh. Calling ahead, however, would explain what the process is and what kind of treatment they should expect to give. Mm -hmm. So Ashley, can you lead us through then a typical ER visit uh, that a patient with a bleeding disorder might experience? Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about a person who has gone to the ER complaining of arm pain and we'll look at the process for a, an ER that's not extremely busy. We'll call this patient Mark. Mark has moderate hemophilia A, and he fell down the stairs while taking the garbage out this morning at 10. He broke the fall with his right hand, and though he has no visible injuries, his right forearm is hurting. So there's now some minimal swelling, and he's feeling tightness and tingling in that right arm. Mark put ice on his arm, and he called his home care nurse. The nurse and Mark talked about the situation and decided that he needs a dose of factor, but he's unable to administer that medication because he can't use his right arm. The nurse, however, is on her way to use another patient and would not be able to get to Mark for several hours. Together, they decide that Mark needs to go to the emergency department for an infusion and an x-ray to rule out a fracture. So Mark leaves his house at noon. He's headed to the emergency department. The nurse did not call ahead to the ER. At 1, Mark signs in at the ER with a chief complaint of arm pain. At 1.15, the registration staff gets him registered for his emergency department visit. 
At 1.30, Mark sees the triage nurse and explains what happened at home. He also tells the triage nurse that he has hemophilia and he brought his medication with him. The triage nurse is not familiar with hemophilia and does not understand that Mark needs his medication quickly to help stop the bleeding inside of his arm. So even though that Mark told her he had his medication, he did not explain that he needed it now. Mm -hmm. At 1.50 p.m., the triage nurse orders an x-ray and Mark is sent back to the waiting room to wait. 2.30 rolls around, the x-ray technician takes Mark to get the x-ray, sends him back to the waiting room. It's now 3.30. Mark is finally put in one of the emergency department rooms for evaluation. He tells the nurse exactly what he told the triage nurse. This time, he pulls his medication from the bag and tells the nurse he will need to have an infusion. The nurse tells Mark that the doctor will need to see him first, not realizing the urgency, and the nurse does not know to make Mark a priority patient. At 4.20, the doctor finally comes in to let Mark know his x-ray was normal. By this time, the swelling has increased in Mark's arm, and he is starting to have pins and needles sensation that it, on the affected extremity. He tells the doctor that he has hemophilia and he needs his medication. The doctor orders the administration of the medication, but now Mark will need to be evaluated for compartment syndrome. So the time of injury to the medication administration took over six hours. And ideally, Mark should have his medication at home prior to the ER visit. Since that didn't happen, the home care nurse could have called the emergency department and prepared them for Mark's arrival. The time from injury to medication could have decreased by at least three hours, and Mark would not be facing potential compartment syndrome. So making that phone call to the emergency department staff may completely change the outcome for this patient. I've never spoken in all my years with a triage nurse or a physician on duty that did, that did not appreciate the phone call explaining the situation, the patient's current condition, and the treatment information. Mm, okay. So... Let's um, switch over and let's begin talking about management and treatment for bleeding disorders. So can you lead us into that discussion? So the management and treatment of bleeding disorders varies from patient to patient. There is, however, a common goal for every bleeding disorder patient or caregiver, and that is to be independent in care. All factor replacement is administered intravenously either via central line, a port-a-cast, a pick line, or peripheral access with a butterfly needle. So ideally, the parents are taught initially to access ports and care for central lines if their child has one. And then when the child is old enough for a venous access, then the child learns to do it, or parents will also learn and then help teach the children to access a vein with a butterfly needle for their medication. The youngest child I think I've ever taught is was seven years old, so usually around eight or nine, we start teaching at least how to find the veins and getting used to holding the needle. Mm, wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It is, it is. <laughs> the frequency of their therapy will differ as well. So if you can recall from an earlier question, hemophilia A and B can be classified as mild, moderate, and severe. Patients that are considered mild may only treat on demand, which means they will keep just a few doses of medication at home, and they only infuse their medicine when they have a bleed going on. The moderate and severe, however, will dose two to three times a week and sometimes every other day. Mm. The hemophilia B patients treat a little bit differently. They um, 
they only need to do it once or twice a week. They don't generally do every other day or three times a week. Our Von Willebrand patients may not require a doctor at all. Uh, they, and then when they do, it may not be prophylactically. They do have factor replacement, just like the A and B patients, so they can treat on demand, or they may have a designated dosing schedule to prevent those bleeds. Okay. Okay. Wow. Lots of really good information for us. Ashley, tell us, are there new or emerging treatments for bleeding disorders? Well, this is a very exciting time in the bleeding disorder community. I will go on to say that currently the intravenous factor replacement is the treatment mainstay. Uh, both plasma-derived and recombinant factor replacement is available, and on average the half-life of those products is about 10 to 12 hours. Now, in the recent years, we've seen several new products on the market that extend the half-life of the medication by a few hours. This has been a game-changer for some, and it has reduced the frequency of infusions. So for a hemophilia A patient, they may have gone from three times a week to two times a week, which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but when you're poking yourself with a needle, like that's, that's a big deal. It is. It is. Now it's, it is a very big deal. And in the last year, though, we have seen... Uh, subcutaneous products welcome to the market. So currently it's restricted to a small population within hemophilia A patients and um, those with inhibitors specifically, which is something we didn't talk about. But additionally, there are a lot of chatter about gene therapy going on. So there's a possibility of some major changes within the bleeding disorders community in the near future, and I'm super, super excited to be working with the community during this time. Wow, that's exciting. And subcutaneous infusions, too, I, that is an entirely different uptake. You know, we, we always think of it, we need to get that in a vessel. Um, so this is really new, and, and um, I hope that you will share more information with us in the um, months and years ahead um, so that we can stay abreast of these changes. So let's transition now yet again, and I want to talk about the role of the infusion nurse for folks with bleeding disorders. Yes, so the, the role of the infusion nurse for the bleeding disorder patients is a little bit different um, in, in areas. So infusion nurses for bleeding disorder patients provide more than just the medication administration in the home. So these infusion nurses become patient advocates, they become educators, they provide emotional support, they help navigate insurance plans, and they do so much more. So because bleeding disorders, the management and the treatment for, are lifelong, nursing support is also lifelong. So it's not uncommon for the bleeding disorder family or patient to keep that same nurse for many, many, many years. So in fact, um, just a little story to share, I've had one little patient that I started caring for when he was about six months old, and he is now six. And even though the family can infuse this little guy and they don't need me to come do it, I don't see him often, but we do keep in touch and I don't expect that to change. I look forward to watching him graduate one day from high school and get married. Wow. So it's, it's amazing to follow these kids from little bitty babies to teens to adults and then supporting them as they take charge of their bleeding disorder and become independent in care. 
Oh, that's wonderful. And I think so many of our INS members who do manage care for um, children and families uh, that are experiencing bleeding disorders, you have just um, spoken into their lives. They they know that they have these patients for so many years and for such yeah. a long time, and that really it is a relationship that's developed, and they see um, that partnership of care that's so important. Absolutely. Yes. You almost become part of the family. <laughs> I can imagine. And and it, just think how much of a comfort it is for them to have that phone number that they can call when they need help. I'm sure that um, every bleed... Um, until they get very, very comfortable is is frightening for both the child, the parent, and um, learning to manage that in a safe, efficient way is really essential. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being our guest on INS's Talking in Vain. We appreciate your expertise and the opportunity to discuss care and management for bleeding disorders. We want our listeners to know also that Ashley Smith is preparing an INS webinar that will air in January 2019, and she will also focus then on the pediatric patient very specifically. And this concludes our session of Talking in Vain. Thank you for listening.